Amen. If you enjoyed the worship this morning, say amen. I'm so thankful the worship doesn't stop when the music stops. We continue to worship as we get into his word. Um, man, I'm just so thankful for the many words that have already been shared, uh, for the music. I appreciate what Renee shared before her song and just the beauty of pouring out our praise before him. Um, man, what a morning. What a morning. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we are in week three of our six-week series, uh, the Passion Week, or looking at the last week of Jesus's earthly, that Passion Week. And we've covered a lot of ground, so I said last week. So many of you know, last week, we praised God for that. And we were able to celebrate with amazing food, because whenever a Baptist church celebrates anything, there has to be a potluck. There's got to be food there. So we are so thankful to have that and all those that provided food for that event. But also, uh, it was just an amazing morning to hear from so many that shared of some of our families whose families have been in our church for generations. And to hear individuals share about how when they were growing up or when their parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents were involved in North Goodland, what a blessing it was to be a part of hearing that. Um, And I made a statement last week, and I needed to clarify this. I said that over the years, we've had so many amazing preachers fill the pulpit. So many great men have preached the word at North Goodland as a part of the ministry here. And then I said something. I said, present company excluded. And while I still agree in my case that is true, I need to clarify I was not referring to Pastor Greg. So if anyone here was like, wow, he just threw Pastor Greg. I know Pastor Greg would never think that um, amazing order of the word of God and just what a great uh, theologian Pastor Greg is when he delivers the word. And so I would never use such a a phrase to describe Pastor, Pastor Greg's preaching. So just so we're clear, I was not speaking about Pastor Greg. Amen. And so, uh, again, present meaning me. But this morning, as we dive into the message, uh, I am so excited to continue our journey uh, from the arrival of Christ into Jerusalem. We talked about that on Palm Sunday as far as when he arrived into the city. And then last week, we talked about the cleansing of the temple, that Jesus cleansed the temple uh, early in the Passion Week. And if you missed any of the messages so far in the last couple of weeks, we encourage you, you can go online, northgoodland.org. You can go on our app, which is North Goodland BC, in your app store. You can find all the messages there. Go back and watch those morning services. We encourage you to do so to kind of catch up this week on where we've been. But this morning, we are moving ahead in the week to the Last Supper. Now, I have to say this because I love how God orchestrates things. Um, Communion was actually planned for last week. And we plan usually by the end of the year, so usually November, December, we're planning the next year for church events. And so as a staff, we kind of sit down, we start talking about different events, what's going on. And uh, all the communions, for the most part, for this year were planned by the end of last year. And so communion in March for last week was planned at the end of last year, okay? I started kind of putting together this message series about four weeks ago, really kind of looking at where we would be. And so when I decided to have this Sunday, this morning, be about the Last Supper or communion, I didn't even realize until Monday that we had moved communion from last week to this Sunday because of the 125. It was going to be a lot to have in the service. And so I thought, you know what, I don't want to really take away from communion. So we'll just move that one week. It'll be fine. And Monday morning, I was sitting at my desk kind of preparing some thoughts and kind of putting some things to paper. And it just kind of hit me that we get to celebrate communion on the morning we talk about the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. 
And I love how God does those things. I love how God just works those things together for his glory. So I'm so thankful to be able to celebrate communion this morning with you. And we'll talk more as we get closer to communion, the time of communion, what we do here at North Goodland. So we want to invite you to be a part of that. Now, as we study the communion, the Lord's Last Supper, the Passover meal, uh, however you would refer to that time that Jesus spent with his disciples during the Passion Week, there are various topics that are covered. Uh, Lots of things are talked about during the Last Supper, after the Last Supper, while the meal is going on. We know about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that follows the meal. And so there's a lot of things that go into this time in one evening, night, and into the early morning and all that Jesus went through. So we could spend a whole sermon series on just the Last Supper and all the different topics that are spoken to in the various gospel accounts. But this morning, what I'd like to do is just take a few of those a couple aspects of this Last Supper, and I pray that it would do what we said early on of why we even started this series. The reason, and maybe many of you remember this, and I pray that you've been praying this over the last three weeks or coming into the third week. If you remember, I said that when, when the Lord entered Jerusalem, the people rejoiced. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Kings. And fulfilling scripture and all that took place on that, that beautiful day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus knew he was entering Jerusalem as a king. And at the end of that week, he was going to die as a sacrificial lamb. He knew what was going to transpire. But the people really weren't aware of the fullness of what was going on. Even the disciples didn't really understand all that Jesus was going to do during this week. And so we talked about the fact that when the people were praising, the Bible actually she tells us Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem. He was weeping because the city was not understanding who it was that had come to them. That Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, the Messiah, was coming to bring salvation. And so many of the religious leaders had missed it. And so while the people are praising and shouting and excited, the Bible says that Jesus actually wept over Jerusalem in the same way that Jeremiah the prophet wept over Israel. And so when you think about that, that he come in, I remember I said that when he entered the city... It was going to be a a, a hard week for Jesus as far as what he was going to endure. There was going to be so many things that Jesus was going to endure this week. But I I kind of encouraged us that the disciples, as much as it was going to be a, a hard week for Jesus, and obviously we think about all that Jesus went through, the sacrifice of the cross, the beatings, and everything that went into that. And man, we can't even compare. But the disciples are getting ready to go through a pretty hard week too. They're going to go through some difficult times this week. And I said it in that first week, and I pray that you've been thinking about this, that the disciples needed the Passion Week. The disciples needed this week to prepare themselves, to have their faith strengthened, to prepare for what was coming once Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again, and then ascended into heaven. They needed this week of time with Christ, growing in their faith, seeing and and understanding the fulfillment of scripture. And if Jesus was faithful to go to the cross, be buried and rise again, then Jesus is faithful to stay with them and continue with them as they minister through the book of Acts and so on through the New Testament. And I pray that you've been, as you were encouraged to do, been praying, Lord, how will you grow my faith through these six weeks? How will you use these six weeks to grow me in an understanding of who you really are and what you really came to do? Not that we would grow in knowledge and head knowledge and just understanding of these things, but we would turn it into applied knowledge or wisdom, that we would go out and we would live these things, that we'd be changed and conformed into the image of Christ. And so I pray that as we go through this morning, and as we end the service with communion, I pray that you're praying the entire time, Lord, strengthen my faith. Help me to believe 
Help me to have faith to trust that if you were faithful before, you'll be faithful again. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of days I need that reminder. I need to be reminded that he was faithful before and he will be faithful again. There are so many things we go through in this life that challenge our faith and challenge us to to doubt and to, to not trust and to wonder, could he really handle this? Can he really deal with that? I've got this relationship thing. I've got this work thing. I've got this financial thing. I've got this health thing. Can I really believe that he's going to be faithful in all of it? And the resounding answer, not from me, not from our church, but from the word of God is yes. Time and time again, he is faithful. Do you ever just sit back and praise him for his faithfulness to you? Amen? Do you ever just get into a devotion time and you're just, in, just engaging with him and you're just overwhelmed? Lord, you're so good to me that you would even hear my prayers. I mean, that he receives our worship. As Renee said, when, when she came and when, when that woman poured out that oil, that Jesus, in the midst of all the criticism, all the judgment, all that went into that situation that she poured out her praise and the Lord was receiving that praise because it came from a heart of worship and a heart of faith. And so this morning, we're going to dive into Luke's account in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 14. So Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, you can just turn to page 738. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, you can just turn to page 738, Luke chapter 22, and we'll start in verse 14. We're going to read through all the way till verse 20, and then we'll kind of go back and unpack some of the passage. So Luke chapter 22, look at verse 14. Thank you for looking in God's word this morning. I pray that whether it's in print or on your device or, or however you are looking at God's word this morning, I pray that you know it's the word of God that we go to, not man's, wit, not man's opinion, not my ideas, but God's word. So verse 14, and when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, again, remember, Jesus is telling them this whole time. He is preparing them. I must suffer. I will suffer. There's going to be a time of suffering. Remember, even Peter rebukes the Lord, right? Lord, it's not going to be. And I always love this amazing moment because Peter, just a little bit before that, says, oh, no, yeah, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's going to rule and reign. We believe that. And then a time goes by. And when, when Jesus does something, Peter doesn't understand. Oh, no, Lord, it can't be that. Now, I don't know about you, but my prayer life sometimes looks like that. One morning, I'm like, Lord, you're my Savior and my King, my Lord of Lords and my King of Kings, and I worship you and I follow you and whatever you want. And then he starts to move in a way that I don't understand. And my next prayer time is like, Lord, what are you doing? I know I said you're my King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but really, I'm kind of wanting to be in control here. Truth. We do that. And Peter did that. No, Lord, you can't. No, what are you talking about? And so a moment, one moment, he's, you're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're Messiah. The next moment, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. And so again, we have to be encouraged by that. We all are growing through this. But Jesus said to them, I'm going to suffer. This is not a surprise to them, although they act surprised. Verse 16. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took of the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and brake it 
and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, a hungry people desiring to hear from you. We need you to speak to us from your word. We need you to move us and strengthen us and guide us into truth that we would be worshipers of you. And Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this time that we can read about. Thank you for the practical application we get to experience here in just a few moments where we can partake of the Lord's Supper together as brothers and sisters in Christ have been doing since the founding of the church. That for 2,000 years, the body of Christ has gathered to celebrate communion. And we get to be a part of that heritage Lord, to remember that your blood was spilled for us and your body was crucified for us. It's a sober thing to think about, Lord. And I know sometimes, Lord, we, we try to avoid thinking too hard and too long on these things because it is something that draws us to a very solemn way of thinking, a very sober reality. But Lord, may we realize that that is a good thing. Lord, I believe that when we dwell in the truth of the cross, the truth of your blood being shed for us and your body being broken and and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it brings great joy, but also, Lord, it brings a great awareness that this life is not about building our kingdom, that this life is not about amassing as many toys as we can, as many possessions, as much of a financial uh, kingdom that we want to build for ourselves, that this reality, that when the more we dwell in the reality of what you've done for us, the more we will realize, and I pray, be drawn into a realization that this life is for you, that this life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That every day we are called to be missionaries and evangelists and proclaiming the gospel and celebrating communion and studying what you did for us and all that went up to it. Lord, gives us that awareness to see that some of the things that we make important things in our lives aren't nearly as important as we make them. Things we chase and pursue aren't nearly as important as chasing and pursuing after a deeper relationship with Christ. And I'm so thankful that we don't have to chase you down. That you're right there, arms open, receiving anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and personal Savior, I pray that they would come to know you by the drawing of the Holy Spirit, that you would prick their hearts, convict them of sin, draw them to the need of the gospel, that we would believe that you died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, and that anyone who believes by faith in that reality, receiving your grace, will be saved, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And for those that know Christ as the Lord and Savior, I pray that this morning would be a time of worship, a time of celebration, but also a time of maybe sober thinking and re- thinking through this in, a, in an honest way to evaluate our daily lives and do we really allow the truth of what we just read, that your blood was spilled for us and your body was broken, do we allow it to impact our lives for you? Does it, does it force us to want to live in a way that honors you? And Lord, where we've fallen and where we've fail, fell and where we've uh, failed you, Lord, I pray that you'd remind us there is grace to restore and forgive because we've all needed it and we always need it. We always need your grace. And so, Lord, again, thank you for this morning. Glorify your name above all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we must first note a very important aspect of this text. And I love this in verse 15. 
We're not going to spend too much time here. But I love verse 15. So Jesus says unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I love that phrase. With desire, I have desired. Now to our ears, that sounds kind of redundant, right? It sounds kind of funny to hear it say that way. But what he's emphasizing here is this desire, this longing to be with the disciples, that he knows he's going to suffer and he wants to be with them. The first phrase or form of the word with desire, that is the noun form speaking to a craving or a longing, a craving or a longing. But then he says he has desired, and this would be the verb form of that. Now in the Greek, these are actually two different words, two different slight endings of a word, I should say. And one speaks of this idea of to long and to crave for. The other kind of emphasizes more of turning upon a thing. That I'm going to direct my attention to this thing. I want all of my attention on this thing or this person or this situation. So he's saying, I long and I crave to be with you. And now that I'm with you, I'm turning my full attention on you. I'm putting all of my attention on this meal and this time. Why? So that he might prepare them and glorify the Father. Now, if you want to take... Notes, you want to follow along, you can go on our app, and there's the notes on there as well as we try to make available on there. You can go to the media section, sermon notes, find today's day, and then you'll be able to follow along with notes. Or if you just like a copy of my notes, let me know. I'd love to share those with you so you can continue in your study. But I love this opening verse here because it reminds us of some, something we have to understand, that the heart of Christ is he wants to be with us as much as he wanted to be with the disciples. John chapter 14. That where I am, there you will be also. The desire of Christ is he wants to be with us. He wants to be with the disciples. And he knows there's a vital need for the disciples that he spends this time with them. He says, with desire, with great longing, I have desired to be with you. With great longing and craving, I now turn my attention to this meal, to this time, and to you. And so again, this is important because it shows us the heart of the lamb to be with his disciples as he prepares for his sacrifice, as well as preparing them for his sacrifice. See, the lamb is preparing for his sacrifice to go to the cross, but he's also preparing the disciples for his sacrifice, that he needs to help them to get to a place in their faith. Now again, we see the disciples don't get this perfect. They stumble and they fall through this week. They, they get it wrong. But I love that Jesus continues to invite them into a gracious relationship. It continues to invite them into an opportunity to grow and understand and trust. So the first thing we must note here as we break apart this text is we see the preparation through Passover. The preparation through Passover. And again, if you're following along in your notes, that's that first kind of main point there. Preparation through Passover. Look at verse 16. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is preparing you through this meal. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to leave. I'm going to die and rise again. Now we know that he's resurrected on Easter Sunday. We praise the Lord for that. And we know that we serve a risen Savior, not a dead Savior. And we praise God for that. We know that he spent 40 days roughly with the disciples from the time of his resurrection to the time of his ascension. 
Again, training them, Acts chapter 1, with the truths of the kingdom to come. But here we see he's preparing them through this Passover meal. He's preparing them through this time together. And the first thing we notice among the disciples, I would imagine, based on even other texts, is something was different this time. Something was different this time. When the disciples sit down to the meal, Jesus makes this declaration. He talks about how much he desires to be with them. And I'm going to imagine it probably struck them a little different. Something was just different about the atmosphere of the dinner. They just sit down and things just feel different. Now, the disciples were unaware of the fullness of this meal, a meal that they have shared together many times as they've walked with Christ now for roughly three years. They've celebrated the Passover together. And again, they've had this meal together, but something was just different this time. The religious leaders are growing frustrated with Christ. They're getting more and more antagonistic to the things of Christ. There's a there's a tension in the air this week walking through Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple and the religious leaders were not happy about that because he called out their hypocrisy. There's just this feeling of something is building, something is coming. If you've ever been in a situation like this where you just sense something is different, like there's just a tension in the room. You don't, can't put your finger on it. You don't know really what it is, but there's something building. There's something coming. And that's what this meal was like. The religious leaders, again, are getting frustrated. The tensions are growing. And I'm sure even among the group, there was some tension. Remember, even in this text and other places, we read that the location for the Passover meal was actually kept secret until the day of the meal. That they hadn't planned this specific location days or even weeks in advance. This is kind of the day of, okay, we're going to go to this location. So even that adds to the tension that we've got to keep this kind of secret because the religious leaders are building in their antagonism towards Christ. And they've tried to arrest him before. And is this going to be the week? Maybe after Passover week, they're going to come after Christ and try to arrest him or try to hurt him in some way. And so they're, they're wondering what's going to happen here. And then something unexpected happened. Something was different in this meal. And then something unexpected happened. Now you can jot it down for notes sakes. It is in your notes, but John chapter 13, we're not going to turn there for time's sake. But John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11, we read about the moment that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. This also would then include Judas, who is going to betray Christ. There's no indication that he left before the foot washing. Most likely he was there until after. And so Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, showing them this model of service, showing them this model of humility. And he gets to Judas' feet. And can you imagine being Judas in that moment? Like, you know you're going to betray him. The deal's already been made. You already know it's going to go down. And he's bowing at your feet, washing your feet as an act of humility. I don't know about you, but I, 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 would, I would lose it in that moment. In that moment, I'd be like, I'm so sorry, Lord. I made a horrible decision. Would you please forgive me? And he's washing the disciples' feet, and he's serving them, and he's doing all of this. And notice also that if you've studied the text, and you can go back and read it this week, that this act of Christ took place during the meal, not at the beginning of the meal. This also includes a time when his disciples and Luke's gospel makes it sound like they were arguing after the time of the meal. But really what it's saying is even before, this is a time when the disciples are arguing and debating about who's the greatest in the kingdom. The disciples were arguing about who was even the greatest among them. 
We alluded to this before that the disciples are actually arguing, like, is it me? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Because we're the top three. Like, we're the ones that were there in the Mount of Transfiguration. We're the, we're the really important ones. I mean, who really knows Bartholomew anyway, right? Nobody talks about Bartholomew or James the less. Come on, he's less. You want James the most or the more, right? That's just a reference most likely to his age. But either way, they're arguing and bickering about who's the best. I said it last week. I believe it was last week. We talked about even, um, or maybe it was Wednesday night, that, um, by the way, I'm getting a little concerned because I'm finding remembering things getting a little sketchy. Not even going to lie. Like, there's times I walk into a room and I'm like, what did I come in here for? And then I sit down and I just kind of, that couldn't have been that important. About 20 minutes goes by and I'm like, man, I'm really hungry. That's what I was going to do. I was going to eat something. But as you think about this idea that, that and I mentioned it before, that even James and John's mom comes and like defends them and tries to get them the best spot in Jesus's kingdom. And so here you see this happening and they're bickering and they're fighting. And how does Jesus counteract that bickering and fighting and arguing about who's the best? He doesn't get up and rebuke them all. He could have, and he would have been appropriate to do so. It would have been fine. He decides rather to model before them what humility looks like. Could you imagine this meal? They're still picking on each other, bickering with each other. This is the last meal that Jesus is going to spend with them before he goes to the cross and dies for their sins. And they're arguing about who's going to get the best seat in the kingdom. And Jesus just gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, wraps himself in a towel, the act of a servant, gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash their feet. He's demonstrating before them that if I can serve you in this way, that you can serve one another this way. He was by far the greatest among them worthy of all praise and all worship. And yet in fulfilling his own statement and encouraging them that the greatest in the kingdom will actually be the least, he models that before them. He served all of them. One author says this, on this occasion, there was no servant and no one else volunteered. There was no servant to wash the feet, which would be a common custom. And no one else among the disciples volunteered. Think about that for a moment. They're all sitting there. I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best. And none of them went, maybe I should put Jesus' teachings into action and be the least to be the greatest in the kingdom. Not for pride or for bragging rights, but just to model that Christ-likeness. Jesus' action was, again, during the meal, not upon arrival, done deliberately, this author believes, to emphasize a point. It was a lesson in humility, but it also set forth the principle of selfless service that was soon to be exemplified at the cross. This is just a precursor to what was coming. The cross is the greatest act of humility Jesus ever could have displayed. The perfect lamb of God slain for sinful mankind. The greatest of all dies a criminal death. You see, the lamb was preparing them for a sacrifice that would change everything. He was preparing the disciples. Something was different this time. And then something unexpected and astonishing happened to the point where Peter says, no, Lord, I forbid you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And Peter, being the man that he was, a man of extreme ultimatum, said, then wash all of me, Lord. I love Peter. I really do. He says what we think, but we're just so afraid to say it. 
Did you notice the only time, one of the only times I read of Jesus or Peter not speaking directly was when he leaned over to John the Baptist when he was going to be betrayed. He says, one of you are going to betray me. Peter leans over to John, not John the Baptist, John the disciple, and says, hey, ask him if it's me. Peter's so willing to speak and say whatever. And yet in that moment, he was like, I I could betray him. Ask him if it's me that's going to betray him. And so again, we see here that, that these disciples are arguing and bickering, and yet Jesus demonstrated the greatest act of love and served them, and he's going to use it as a precursor for the cross. You see, this is preparation through Passover, but also we see that this sacrifice that is going to take place is a sacrifice that brings a new promise. The lamb was preparing them for a sacrifice that would change everything. And that sacrifice is a sacrifice that brings a new promise. Look at verses 17 through 20. Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 20. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Verse 20. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood which is shed for you. You see, Jesus here is saying this is a new promise, a new covenant. Jesus is establishing a new covenant with them, with the disciples. This is a covenant agreement. This is a promise. So a covenant is merely a promise between two parties. A covenant is merely a promise between two parties. Now, normally the way a covenant would work is two parties come to the table and they agree on what they're going to do. So usually it's military allegiance. So say you're the leader of a smaller nation and there's some other bigger nations around you that are kind of building up their force and you're worried they might come in and overtake you. And so you go to another big nation and you say, hey, we'll enter into a covenant. We'll enter into agreement. And if you agree to come alongside and help us and defend us, then we agree we'll give you this resource or we'll help you in this way or whatever. Usually it wasn't equal military force coming together. It was usually we have some things to offer, but not much of a military force. You've got a great military force. Let's come to an agreement and then we'll enter into this. And then if we back out of the deal or you back out of the deal, it's a death sentence. Like we could be killed for this, for breaking a covenant. And so that's usually how this would work. However, in both the old and new covenants, so when God made a promise with Abraham or Jesus makes a covenant with his disciples, it is not two parties coming together, bringing something to the table of value and worth. It is us coming to the table with our sin and our brokenness and our shame and saying, I have nothing to offer. And God through Christ comes and says, I give you grace and forgiveness and mercy and I'll restore you and I will hold you and I will keep you in my covenant. See, we don't bring anything to the table in the new covenant except for the sin that makes the covenant necessary. And we come in our brokenness and we don't say, I'll get your back on this and you get, no, 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 it's I have nothing. And Jesus comes and initiates this covenant. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Again, the disciples in this moment, I can only imagine when Jesus says these words. To us, we've heard these words so many times. And we're going to read in 1 Corinthians in just a little bit when we come to our communion. The words of Paul as he relays this to the church. But here when Jesus talks about the cup and the bread, no one has ever done that before. No one in any Passover since the time of its initiation in the Old Testament, no one has ever said this cup is 
my blood. This bread is my body. It always signified the sacrificial lamb that was slain during the time of the Exodus. The blood that was put over the doorpost so that God's people would be spared. They always seen it as a lamb that was sacrificed for protection, but also for the glory of God, the provision of God, that he would provide a way of salvation. And Jesus stands and he, with authority, says, this cup, this bread, now represents something so much more powerful than you've ever known. Again, the disciples were shocked, I'm sure, to hear words that no one has ever said. No one has ever made themselves out to be the actual bread and the actual cup of Passover. Jesus, in doing this, was changing over a thousand years of tradition in one simple moment. Jesus used the leftover elements of the Passover and re-signified them as his body and his blood, which were broken and spilled out for them. The Moody commentary, I love this, says Jesus viewed his death as sacrificial and victorious. It was sacrificial and victorious. Another author said it as it is the point of transaction and transition between two economies. It is the point of transition and transaction between two economies. What does that mean? The way in which God interacted with man and called man to interact with himself was going to change through the cross. Now, how can Jesus do this? How can Jesus take over a thousand years of teaching and tradition and just change it in a moment? The reason Jesus could do this is because that lamb in the Old Testament was a symbol of his coming sacrifice. He is the lamb of God. That lamb in Exodus was a picture, a foreshadowing of what Jesus was coming to do. Jesus has the authority as God and as the sacrificial lamb to say, no longer is this symbolic of what I've done in the past, what God has done in the past. No, this is a present tense commitment that I'm making to you by faith through grace. Now we have to understand the old covenant, the old promise was still by faith and grace. That has never changed. However, In the Old Testament, we see the weight of the law and also the need for continual sacrifice. That constantly they would have to give sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is preparing to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 in fullness. Again, they do not fully understand what Jesus will endure. They don't understand when he says in verse 15, before I suffer. They have no idea what that entails. And if I'm being honest, we still don't fully understand what that entails. That he suffered for us. He suffered for them. However, Jesus goes through it willfully. He does it with joy. How is it he could do it with joy? Due to his love for the Father, his love for the Father's glory, and a love for the disciples. That is why he makes a promise with them, a commitment to them. Warren Worsby says in his commentary, and I love this, he saw beyond the suffering to the glory, beyond the cross to the crown. And in his love, he reached out to include his friends. He wanted these disciples, those that have walked with him and lived with him and ministered with him for three years, he wanted them to know, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this so that we can have a relationship for all of eternity, that your sins can be forgiven, and that one day when you leave this world, you will stand before me in the glory of my Father's kingdom. 
And I love the reality that Jesus was so honest with them. I'm doing this so I could begin a new promise, a new covenant. New Testament, Old Testament, New Covenant, Old Covenant. Promise is also a word we can put there. So our New Testament is in relation to the new covenant, the new promise that God makes with us through the cross. You see, Jesus is establishing a new covenant with them, but also in this moment, he's establishing a new covenant with us. A new covenant with us. It is not by the blood of lambs, the blood of a sacrifice that grants us eternal life. It is by the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away our sin and grants unto us not just life, eternal life. I love the term salvation in Scripture. The word salvation simply means to completely set free. To completely set free. To completely rescue. So when the Bible talks about salvation in Christ, it's not just saying, yeah, you get to go to heaven when you die. It's saying, no, I've rescued you. I've redeemed you. I've, I've brought you out of sin and brought you into eternal life. And you will walk in my presence for all eternity. I've done this for you. I've set you free. We were rescued and set free because of the cross. And again, I won't dive too much into that this morning. Pastor Greg will actually be speaking to this in week five of our series about the cross and how the cross impacts our life and all that the cross means and represents. But suffice it to say, we know that our salvation is secured through the death of Christ on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. In the new covenant, we rest in the sacrifice of Christ, who once and for all was offered for sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Once and for all he was offered for sin. See, when we stumble into sin, he doesn't get crucified again. When we repent and turn from our sin, it was once and for all. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the completed word of God. We are under his grace, not as a license to sin, but an invitation to live for Christ. We are held in the hand of Christ, which is held in the hand of the Father. And our God is a promise-keeping God. And if he was faithful before, he is faithful still. And if he provided a promise then, he keeps that promise still. Communion or the Lord's Supper is such a vital and important part of worship for the followers of Christ. We are about to partake in this moment something that connects us with 2,000 years of church history. Over church history, there's been many disagreements about many things in, in God's word. Many disagreements and differences of opinion about how you do church, what to do in church, what do you wear in church, what kind of music do you do in church, times of services, lengths of services. Praise God, we don't have that problem here, amen? We just go until we go, okay? All those differences. But do you know one of the... One of the stationary and stable things that hold the believers together, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the baptism of new believers in Christ. And it is the Lord's Supper. Those things hold us together. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what does baptism and the Lord's Supper have in common? Well, baptism demonstrates our initial identification with Christ and his church. When we are saved and then baptized, as we just got to celebrate here about a month ago, a little less than a month ago, individuals that said, I've received Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I want to identify publicly to profess that I am a follower of Christ. And baptism gives us that opportunity to do that as a symbol of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 
The Lord's Supper celebrates our continual identification with Christ and his church. Think of it like this. Baptism is like the wedding, a public ceremony which declares the commitment between husband and wife. Communion would be like a continual renewal, like celebrating an anniversary between husband and wife, where we affirm again our commitment one to another. So this morning, in just a few moments, we're going to get to do that. I want to invite you to celebrate the continual relationship that you have made available to you by grace, through faith, because of Christ. You don't keep your relationship with Christ. You don't hold on to him because you had to let go a long time ago. He holds on to us. And I'm so thankful that he does. He has given us his Holy Spirit, which seals us into the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1. And he invites us into this relationship. Every single day we get to walk with him. Every day we can bow our heads and close our eyes or with heads up and eyes wide open say, My Father who is in heaven, I come before you and I lay this before you. And he receives that. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would know that the sacrifice of the Lamb was for us, that he might invite us into a new covenant, a new promise, not based on what I can do for him in keeping some commandments, but based solely in the finished work of the cross, that by grace, through faith, I live in the freedom of salvation because to be saved is to be rescued and set free. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads right there where you are. I'm going to invite you to pray. We're going to have a song of invitation in just a moment. We're going to sing unto the Lord a a song of worship and praise. And as the praise team comes and is going to lead us in just a moment, we want to invite you to begin to pray right there where you are. That you'd begin to seek the Lord. You'd begin to thank him for his sacrifice. You'd begin to ask him to continue to prepare your heart and mind for What lies ahead in worshiping him through communion? Maybe you would right there where you are, you would just ask the Lord, Lord, give me wisdom and guidance to have my faith strengthened. To see the humility that was demonstrated at the Last Supper. To realize that I can can lay my life down in service to others and be a blessing to them and serve them and in so doing worship you. Father, I thank you for the sacrifice. I thank you for this time that you spent with the disciples. I pray that we would know that that desire you had to be with them, the same desire you have to be with us. That you just want a relationship with us, that we might come into that relationship, have our sins forgiven so that your grace would be glorified through generations to come. It would be displaying the beauty of your grace, but also it would be displaying the glory of the Father, that you would love individuals like us who are broken and flawed and imperfect, and yet you desire to be with us. I pray, Lord, that we'd be so thankful for this new promise, this new covenant that is not based on our continual sacrifice, our continual keeping of commandments, but the heart of that old covenant remains true to reveal to us the need of a Savior, a Messiah who would come, and set us free that we might worship him and live in the abundant eternal life. Father, again, do what you need to do in our hearts and minds to prepare us for communion. Help us to be honest and real before you, to lay before you what we're dealing with, and to look to your grace for mercy, for forgiveness, as we repent and turn to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Would you respond to what the Lord is doing? Maybe you'd like to come this morning and bend a knee up front and just take a time of prayer. Maybe you want to come and just prepare your heart and your mind. Is there a sin issue you need to confess before the Lord and seek repentance? Come and pray there in your seats or if you'd like to come forward. Let us take this time to also prepare our hearts for the coming communion as we worship him together.